Hello, folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory, and today we are once again spanning the globe in a feat of technological wizardry made possible by the ceaseless generosity of our patrons to bring a special guest to the show all the way from Taiwan. Uh, this is an episode that we've had on the slate for quite some time, and we really want to extend a hearty thanks to all our patrons for giving us the opportunity to do a remote interview like this and something that is just above potato quality. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I gotta say, I'm also kind of thrilled at the prospect of an annual international edition of the show, uh, because you guys may remember it was very close to this time last year that we interviewed Helen Pluckrose and Iona Italia in episode 45. So, since if you're good with this, I'm calling our shot with the continued generosity of our patrons next year, Sense and Theory International Edition, live via satellite, Vladimir Putin. Beans, make that happen. Uh-huh. Well, he's already signing Bean's paychecks, so, you know, why not? <laughs> All right, but uh, without further ado, uh, let me introduce our guest today, and our guest is Duncan, uh, originally from Lexington, Kentucky, but currently living in Taipei, Taiwan. Duncan has been an expat living in East Asia for the past decade. Uh, he spent a lot of that time in school as both student and teacher, but the last few years have seen him working and writing in the Taiwanese news media. Wait, that in makes addition- him a journalist, right? That does make him a journalist. Are you a journalist? He does indeed, yeah. Awesome. In addition to Taiwan, Duncan has called both Japan and South Korea home, and I think it's fair to say that he's learned quite a bit, having studied the region's languages, history, and politics since before Parappa the Rappa 2 came out. Duncan, welcome to the show. And I just want to add that that is how I divide time, is everything before Parappa the Rappa 2 and everything after Parappa. Wait, full stop. There was a Parappa the Rappa 2? Yeah, no, it was amazing, too. Because I remember back kick, back punch, back it's all in your mind. Real, if you right? want to test me, I'm sure you're fine. You know, eh, but two? Huh. What yeah, were we'll the tight thoughts from that one? Anyway. Like I said, Duncan, welcome to the yep. show. Hey, 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 fellas. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, we started talking about this a few months ago. I've been, been looking forward to uh, having a chat with you guys. Cool. Yeah, absolutely, man. So in the interest of full disclosure, I have to admit that we have known each other 20 plus years now. And, uh, even though I, I kind of watched the process that took you from that one buddy I've got that likes Ninja Scroll, like, you know, way yeah, too that much. Was me. That to, was me. <laughs> to suave cosmopolitan expatriate. Uh, there is still plenty about it that's mysterious to me. So I got to emphasize the suave part. Oh, so suave. This man, yeah, he's got hair like, uh, like a young Fabio. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> handsome. Thank I wish you. you guys could see him. Anyway. Uh, so for me nice and, and the listeners, can you describe not only how you came to live in Asia, but also why you decided that a life abroad would be the life for you? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so there's lots of different answers to that question, but my experience with Asia started with Japan, uh, you know, more than more than any other place. And my interest in Japan was... Uh, your typical otaku, what what they call the weeaboo uh, interest. He's a weeb. <laughs> Not so much anymore, but but there was a time, yeah. So you know, anime, manga, uh, really into ninjas and samurai and all that. Just the real kind of you know, Asian women, Japan, oh, those two, absolutely, yeah. But uh, you know, Final Fantasy, a little bit of the sneak a little bit of the hentai, you know, in the, in the internet <laughs> back in high school, you know, here and there. We dabbled, we dabbled. <laughs> but, uh, so, so I ended up. I had this really great opportunity to go to Japan when I was in uh, when I was in high school. So my junior year of high school, that was 2001 to 2002. I spent a year in uh, not exactly the countryside, but but kind of rural Japan. Was that like and, a foreign uh, exchange program? Yeah, yeah, that was a rotary exchange program that my cool. my mom, bless her heart, sort of arranged for me on the fly because because uh, she thought I was headed down a bad road, hanging out. with Hooligans and, and hoodlums. So, well, you were uh, hanging out with that theory, so you were you were definitely so, yeah, hanging true. out with hooligans. <laughs> that was uh, that was definitely a little, kind of a, a life altering year there that sort of put me on the path towards uh, the expat life, I guess, and my my you know broad interest in in Asia generally. Uh, in that year, I really I, I sort of shifted from the the pop culture Japan and really really kind of got interested in. Uh, history, linguistics, cultural studies, stuff like that. So that really set the 
set the stage. But uh, so I went to UK, University of Kentucky, did uh, more Japan Asian studies there, and I found my way to Taiwan in 2009. So it's been uh, it's been a full decade that I've been living outside of the states now. Oh well. Uh, yeah. I was, assume uh, those first few trips, like you know, especially when you're in the Rotary Exchange, like. It, it must have been just like a world of culture shocks. Are there any in particular that kind of stand out in your mind? Uh, you know, the typical stuff is like, you know, food and uh, the language barrier is always a huge issue for, you know, for people that, uh, you know, Westerners or anyone really that find themselves, you know, in a completely different like linguistic environment and you, you, you rely on other people to help you or the most most basic modes of communication. So all that, yeah, it's a difficult uh hurdle to overcome, I think, you know, move into a, a different country and I guess starting starting roots, developing friendships and networks. I don't know, let me think. Japan in particular, if you want to talk about like uh, cultural shock and and issues there, a lot of times with the language issue it feels like um, people might might not take you seriously or like they one big difference between the US and Japan is that is that people in Japan kind of talk around the topic. Like if they want something done or they want some information, they sort of like, they're very, uh, like they beat around the bush, as we would mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm, uh, right. in, in the U S you know, people are very direct about generally very direct about what they want. And sometimes that can even be sort of, uh, impolite to a degree. If you're, you know, if you're from a Japanese cultural background, so, Are we talking uh, yeah, like beating around the bush about like normal everyday stuff or like hard topics? I mean, like if I want to go to the bathroom, am I am I going like, you know, I really uh really need to pee. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I could use a toilet right now. Do you do you you know do you do you have a, a yeah, toilet yeah. at your facility? I mean, is yeah. it like that? Everything, everything. Yeah, like if you're being you know if you're asking your teacher or even like like if you're really respectful towards a parent, you wouldn't you know you wouldn't just say like. Please, can I go take a dump? Or please, can I? You, you really would. They really might be like, uh, I have something I need to take care of. Can I please be excused? You know, like, interesting. Like, it's almost you know, like you want to suss out the understanding and respect from the other person. It's almost like you want to, yeah, you know, yeah. you want to let them uh, come to your understanding rather than just throwing it in in their face. Yeah, like a good example of this, uh, like in like a few classes I've taken talking about like Japanese linguistics is. Uh, let's say you're in an office environment and it's really it's really hot, so you want to turn on the AC. Like you wouldn't like even if you were a superior speaking to like speaking to your employee, you probably wouldn't just say uh, turn on the AC. You would say like uh, so like Sasaki-san, it's quite warm in the office, isn't it? And <laughs> they're they're supposed to they're supposed to pick up the cue and and like oh right. we should absolutely AC. yeah yeah so it's uh, Yes. So did they like uh you know being being an American like was, were you afforded you know let's say like with with some of those like etiquette codes and stuff were you afforded like plenty of leeway or were they like you know they're like we'll cut you some slack but like you're getting like grimaces and scowls and stuff like that you know Uh absolutely I think generally yeah they cut you some slack they don't they don't hold foreigners uh to the same standards that they do you know you know people in their own culture so uh, especially as a teenager or like a college kid, they're, they're like rolling their eyes like brash American <laughs> stomping <laughs> through yeah. the forest. He said he wanted more rice. Yeah, yeah, you're not too far off. That's well, cool. I know, like you touched on it, I know quite a bit of the transition, uh, you know, your educational pursuits, even even the jobs you worked have kind of revolved around just learning the language. Uh, if I remember correctly, you once had a job where you take you teach English to students for half the day and then spend the other half learning Chinese. So I got to ask, like, what was it like flipping between, you know, sort of being a pro and then a rookie like that? Like, you know, one morning, you know, in the morning time, here you are, you're the man, you know, you're teaching everybody, giving the insights. And then in the afternoon, you're just as lost as anybody else. And and I also wonder, like in general, were there any insights into our language that teaching it abroad gave you? Uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, the learning and teaching balance uh, definitely gives you a more holistic view of like language learning in general. I think in that in that sort of work study program that I would, that was in Taichung, Taiwan. That was the that was from 2009 to 2011. 
And yeah, that was a really cool experience because, you know, half the day I'm in class absorbing, you know, new, new language, like learning Chinese. And then the other half of the day, I'm in a room full of like 40, 40 Taiwanese high schoolers, uh, teaching them English and sort of playing with language and, and being in class gave me the opportunity to, to try out some of the, the Chinese that I was learning. But, but more than that, I think teaching is a really cool, cool job that gives you confidence in like public speaking and, and taking, uh, you know, taking risks, sort of, uh, uh, testing different different means of communication. So being a teacher in a foreign country actually, you know, helped me, encourages me outside of class to use the language and to be less uh, less inhibited about, you know, applying what, what you've learned. Yeah, it's like a really no-pressure situation, right? Like it's a bunch of kids, so you can try out things and see how they react and, like, see if they're snickering at your pronunciation and stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. you're going to get a lot of feedback from kids uh, that you might not ever get from adults, so like I could see that Absolutely. as a yeah. as a real uh, a real plus. Yeah, they could be they they can be the teachers in in some sense, you know. They'll tell you yeah. you know when you say something wrong or stupid. Or, yeah. What else was that that you were uh, we were talking about? Uh, I was just asking in general. Uh, were there any insights into our language that teaching it abroad gave you? So like you know, what was it like having to go to these kids and being like, well, yeah, no, in in this case. You know the S and the C are making the same sound, but you, you know, but but I yeah, promise yeah. there's two letters there. Like you know, what kind of stuff like that did you run into? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, you realize when you start teaching English, you realize how like really hard and difficult English is. It's uh, it's really really a technical language, and and the spelling is just nonsense. You know, to be honest, like, <laughs> our English spelling system is just so like. Well, we have rules, and then we just lose the rules. You know, we yeah, just throw the yeah, rules yeah. out the window all the time, constantly. All the time, yeah. And when you really get into like the English vernacular and what like young people, the way young people talk, now, they they absolutely don't care about these rules at all. You know, it's just we have these like, you know, when you're publishing something or you got to do something professionally, there's it's like all these different, uh, I guess, different aspects of of the language use and when it's okay to just you know say screw the rules and when when it's like oh. You know the grammar Nazis on Facebook that'll call you out for you know there, there, and there. Yeah. But uh, yeah. No, but but really, really, when you when you when you're monolingual and you start learning a second language like decently well, that you have like communicative competence. Uh, you really, it's really a uh, really mind bending to to like reflect on how language sort of bounds our personality and how we we think in language, you know, it's like when you think about your, when you talk to yourself, you know, in your, in your head about your, you know, your plans and your dreams and your like self-criticism and stuff, you're, you're still using your basic first language generally, right? right? So like when you try and like, try and detach that, like it's, it's a really difficult mental exercise to imagine sort of the, the thought before the word, right? Uh Uh-huh. So are you, are you, you're still fully thinking in English, right? Oh yeah, yeah, too, yeah. Do you ever find yourself like like drifting off into daydreams in in Japanese or something? Uh, recently, no. But but that first year that I was in Japan, I I was entirely surrounded by uh, Japanese speakers. Like I saw I saw other English speakers maybe once a month, and yeah. there were there was a time period that I was like dreaming in Japanese and like sort of uh, yeah, because the the English input had been had been reduced. Like to so right for that period. Right. Yeah. So yeah. so what was the adjustment like for you? Like you're finding yourself, you know, way back when you when you first entered, um, for the first time in your life, you are the racial minority. Um, were there any interesting insights you found yourself having because of that? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's an interesting experience. I, I mean, it's very different at first, but you do get used to it, and you even kind of start to like it. You know, and, and it's funny when you. When you walk past other foreigners in like in public, like strangers, there's this like people joke about it. There's like this little nod you do to each other, just like just acknowledging each other's existence. Because you're like, like part of the in group, but it's like this little tiny in group. Yeah, yeah, but you also have no intention of talking to that person. You're just like, I see you over there, uh-huh. like other other <laughs> other like Western person. Yeah, we we share so, this thing now. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it's interesting, and uh, it just definitely gives you a, a different perspective on, I guess, like you know, uh, social issues and and how how people view you know the in group and the out group. Did you ever uh, find yourself like a victim of racism? Like I always wonder that. You know, we have talks about racism in the U.S. all the time, and uh, I think a lot of people yeah. had a tendency to go like, well, if you were a white guy and in China, you know, people could be racist against you, especially in that whole power and privilege and, you know, white people can't oh, be racist yeah, against yeah, yeah. talk and stuff. Um, did you ever find yourself, like, the straight-up victim of racism? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've definitely been, like, been in situations where I've been a target of derision or, uh, you know, sort of written off or, like, a insult under the breath or poor service here and there. But, but this is, like, not a typical, not a typical experience. And a lot of times... I really think that, like in the West, and how people talk about racism in the U.S. these days is uh, is pretty hyperbolic. Like I think I think there are plenty of like instances where people are are racist. Like generally, like they have oh, yeah. they approach they approach people differently in Japan, and they like they Japanese people approach foreigners in a way that they don't approach other Japanese. And even if it's like what I'm saying is, like, there is discrimination, but it's not necessarily malicious. Like, they're not intending to Sure, so to you be... never felt like, like your life was in danger or anything like that? Like, walking down the street and people are, like, you know, smacking the pipe into their palm, like, <laughs> giving you the stink mm. eye? Not for like, me. Not I mean, around certain, here, boy. I mean, there's there's certain shady areas where you don't want to be in, in Tokyo or, or Taiwan, for that matter. But, but generally, no. I mean, it's, like, it's like a very safe society and the most you're going to get is sort of like people speaking under their breath or if you're or if you're being an asshole you know i mean somebody's gonna somebody's gonna check you or, or ask you to leave the area or but no i haven't i've never felt like anyone was like there's whitey let's let's take him out you know right, right. well can yeah, you, no, nothing like that can you speak at all to like the the differences or similarities in how like race is perceived in general uh, you know, in some of these places that you live, you know, whether it's Japan, South Korea, or Taiwan versus the U.S., because I know, especially like, you know, in a case like Japan where, you know, the country was, you know, widely closed off to the rest of the world until very recently, whereas, you know, here in America, we've, we've always had like, you know, a mix of people from various backgrounds. Um, I would imagine it would develop, or at least attitudes on race would develop quite differently, yeah? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, every, you know, every country is its own, is its own story. And, uh, but like, let's take Korea and Japan for an example. Like, they're both mostly, you know, ethnically homogenous. Actually, like, when you really get into the academia, it's not actually true, but it's like a myth. It's like a popular myth that everyone sort of accepts. So, for all intents and purposes, we say, you know, they're racially homogenous countries. But, uh, in there, they have, like, they hold everyone's society to, like, a particular standard. They all expect that uh, that this kind of conduct, people, the people will act this way, that people will do these things, and uh, and, and it, it generally works. You know, they are relatively harmonious. Like there's, you know, there's different social problems in both, but uh, but generally speaking, they're like well performing, like uh, OECD statistics, very, uh, uh, you know. I wouldn't say tight knit, but but functioning, uh, stable societies. Uh, and then you have places like Taiwan and China, which are which are quite different. Like Taiwan is um, is actually quite a multicultural place. There's a lot of a lot of different cultural influences over the last uh, like 200 years of its history. And in, in in Taiwan, you know, ethnic identity is is still kind of an open question. Like it's still malleable, still being formed. Uh, like is uh, is Taiwanese an, eth- an ethnic group? Is Taiwanese its own like autonomous culture group? You know, um, like most people that are here would say yeah, but but there's still this struggle between uh, you know Taiwanese and Chinese identity here. So interestingly, chi- like Taiwan lends itself to a very a very good sense of like civic nationalism, which is what we you know try to promote in the U.S. Uh, there are a lot of like different culture groups. All sort of working together in, in Taiwan. It's a more, it's a uh, a really interesting place. Uh, China, on the other hand, you have one really dominant ethnic group that everybody kind of wants to associate with the Han, the Han Chinese. Right. Uh, and and in China, it's it's kind of a 
they're bordering on like old school, like fascist ideology where there's like, they, they, they don't want to denigrate the, like the minority groups, but they, they're telling them all that they have to be Chinese. Like they might not be Han, but they're all Chinese regardless. So you've got this sort of like a, this very dominant group sort of ordering like directly and indirectly, like how the other groups should behave and how they right. Should, they're kind you know, of setting the social stage and going like, oh, you need to be like us, or you're not, yeah. or you're not Chinese, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's all they, they assign. You know, they're the prestige is to be Han. So, you know, if you're, you know, if one of your parents is half Han, uh, or you have a grandparent at the time, then you like people will be like, well, I'm Han too. You know, they just it's a very porous is, is kind Han, of ethnic identity. Forgive my ignorance, but is is Han uh, is that a is that like a family name? Is that like a region? Uh, where does that where does that come from? It's actually from like uh, an ancient an ancient kingdom in like the the Yellow Valley, like that was the Han the Han Dynasty. Uh, but it's it's roughly a culture group. Like it's it's actually you. I mean they'll. They'll say it's like an ethnic, like it's like a solid ethnic group, but but truthfully, it's more of like a, it's more of like a historical cultural association rather than gotcha. like a genetic a genetic group. Yeah, is that like a like a hey I'm from the south type of <laughs> type of collection of people? Like, uh, yeah, you know, if the if the south had won, perhaps. Like <laughs> ah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think well, of a. Similar example. Actually, actually, a good example is the Jewish, uh, like Jewish identity. Um, uh, people do make that comparison, actually, between like how Han is like absorbs lots of different groups, and like uh, it, like the Jewish group is like through the mother's line, you know. So, so it's like a a fairly expansive sort of a, a open to conversion. Also, if you like convert to Judaism, and then you have a Jewish family, then your kids are, are Jewish. Right, so you, you can know? marry into yeah. the Han line, and now you're and now you're yeah, one of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. But Something only like if that. you act like them and speak like them and drink tea like them, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. And if you believe, and if you believe in the one China policy and, and all that, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. layers, layers. Yeah, well, yeah. it leads me it leads me to my next question, Duncan. How has living in Asia shaped the way that you then view America? And and also I have to ask, you know, you come back from time to time. Does it feel strange when you come back to visit America? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's so weird, like getting back. As soon as you touch down in a, like a U.S. airport, and suddenly you're surrounded by English-speaking Westerners, it's like your your spider sense is like like oh, oh it's you know I'm in different territory now. It, it is it is <laughs> a, kind of a an awkward experience at times, but yeah, no. But for me these days, going back to the states is kind of like a I feel like it's a vacation, you know. Because yeah. I don't have any like I don't have any stress or, or kind of job uh, expectations when I go back to see my family and friends. So for me, I look forward to the trips home these days. But uh, but it is it is quite jarring to be you know to suddenly be, go from like you know the special guy that stands out into the crowd to just a regular ass white dude again. You know that's funny. You you almost it almost sounds like you have like. Like minority privilege in a in a small sense. No, yeah, like, yeah. No, we talked about yeah, we talked about that. I mean, it, it is in a sense you definitely do. Like, I mean, Europeans and uh, North Americans in East Asia, it, East Asia and Southeast Asia especially, kind of have a uh, they're they're well respected. They're treated well. Yeah, yeah. There is definitely some uh, social status there. Like, for example, people. People will uh, will hire white guys to come to their wedding just because they want to get them in the photo. Wow! I mean, that's extreme. I'm not, you know, I don't mean to say. But it's happened. You're not making that up. I take it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they have like like, diversity hires over there. You know, they are they hiring people just because they're white? Well, yes, yeah. That was was my next thing. Like, like uh, cram schools and uh, you know, private. Private institutions and public public schools too. They, you know, if you've got an attractive, if you've got an attractive white teacher, then you're definitely going to get more like interest from parents that want to like send their kids there. It's, uh, yeah, there definitely is a definitely is diversity hires in you know in reverse, I guess, from what we we think of in the U.S. Well, it's diversity to them, you know. Not a lot of yeah, not yeah. a lot of white folks around it. <laughs> yeah, 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 but like, um, but uh, but. But black teachers, they like they, they have a hard time uh, in like with employment in uh, 
in Korea and Taiwan, Japan. It's just like oh, a, that's an interesting angle. So, so hmm. white people as minorities are desirable, but black people as minorities are not desirable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's you know people people have this image of you know getting their kid to have like great pronunciation and great English ability so that they can send them to you know Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, whatever. But they don't they don't really people don't generally associate uh, you know like Africans or African Americans with you know like the the best education that their child can can get. I wonder if that's like media influence. I mean, if like movies and stuff they see, they're they're, they're watching gangster movies and stuff, and that's like yeah, the, yeah. the image they associate with black folks. And they're watching, you know, all of the white Hollywood movies. Um, granted, there are some that do not portray white people well, but you know, overwhelming majority. Um, <laughs> yeah, know, I wonder if that's all like media media stirred, or if there's like deeper racial tensions um, that have developed from, you know... Yeah, I don't culture. think it's so much racial tension because the, you know, the the number of, like, Africans or African-Americans in these countries is is really, really small. So it's not, it's, they're more of like a, a, a mis, mis, mystery or like a, a curiosity to a lot of, a lot of people. They don't see them that often, but they, it's like they don't mind you being around, but they're they're not going to be uh, compelled, or they're not going to be like attracted to sending their child to be taught by by a, an African or yeah, yeah. So. Well, I'd like to uh, I'd like to shift over and and talk about like uh, politics for a moment, and I'd like to specifically talk about politics in Taiwan. But I think <laughs> before we do that, we should kind of get you to describe for us um, how do you see yourself politically. Uh, generally I'd say I lean, lean libertarian mostly these days. Like I'm, I'm like the collective versus individualistic scale. I'm, I'm pretty strong individualist, uh, which is strange to be, to be that in sort of, uh, East Asia where there's this, you know, traditionally collectivist kind of Confucian mentality about, about society and stuff. But, uh, but it's like the yin and yang, you know, it's like, it just, it just works. At least in Taiwan, but uh, yeah, I say yeah. mostly mostly libertarian. You know, I want like a limited functioning government that you know does what's necessary and, and minds its you know kind of leaves people to their own business. Uh, else, you know, when when it's not called for for their intervention, right? Mm-hmm. I think you know, I think the idea of a representative republic is uh, yeah, pretty good. You know, it might not be the the best system ever. Maybe in the future we'll have something better, but but right now I think uh, yeah, I think you know. The U.S. has a, a pretty pretty viable uh, governmental structure. You know, the bare bones of it. Obviously, there's a lot of excess and, and a lot of wasted money and, and misappropriated resources. But you know, if you're looking at the the bare bones of it, you know, I'm I'm pretty much in support. Well, were you would you always say that you lean libertarian, or were you coming from a different place and has living in Asia kind of you know impacted that development or shaped it i mean because you know it is like you say it is odd to to be a libertarian in a sea of a tendency towards collective action you know or a strong emphasis on collective action (laughs) on the group identity yeah yeah Yeah, no absolutely right like you all know me like you knew me in middle school and high school university i was this like sort of punk rock uh, nihilistic, you know, very anti-authoritarian, like leftist. Uh, you know, at the time I called myself an anarchist, right? Pretty but, sure you rocked the anarchy patch. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure I see you rock that a couple years. times. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's that's definitely not me anymore. Um, uh, you know, in terms of like, if we're talking political philosophy and sort of the uh, the more uh, yeah, the more philosophical side of it, you know, I think you can talk about the the idea of anarchism or you know even marxism communism like in a in an academic setting you know to tease out the ideas you know it's worth talking about but but when you really get down to like uh having a functioning government with like like social organization and sort of directing masses and millions of people i mean come on you're kidding you like anarchism is just a that's a joke but, uh, <laughs> that was that was the best way of saying principles versus practicalities I've ever heard. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, so but since coming to uh, since coming to Asia, living here the last uh, ten years, my my mentality has really shifted about the nation state. You know, you know, I used to be on the sort of like like we're all just one big family. You know, like the national boundaries are just gang territory. You know, but but really, I have a new I have a, a much more I feel informed appreciation about the of the nation state uh, after my experience in. Uh, Korea, Taiwan, yeah. and and why is I mean for me it's because I feel like different groups of people I feel like there's no one right way to do it right and the different groups yeah, of yeah. people might all have their own right ways to do it and who am I to say yeah. like your way ain't the right way and if we start Precisely. breaking down borders and stuff then people who think their way is the right way will come to other invariably come to other groups where they think they're the and, and those right ways will now clash and yeah yeah. If we have no borders and we have no systems set up, then and granted saying no borders is, is kind of hyperbole. But if, if we do yeah. not maintain these national borders, then we, then we lose that diversity of thought and, and application of law and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think yeah. the idea is to, is to explore that diversity and find out what works better for, for more people, you know. So, uh, yeah. you know, I think eventually, Maybe we find a way to live in in a society with less borders, and you know. Um, but man, right now it's just it's it's not very practical, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, I mean, the sort of the tr- trend towards, I guess, you know, globalization and the the ideology of globalism uh, really has this tendency towards like cultural relativism, saying like like oh, well, as long as everyone gets like you know the right. The right info, we'll all have the same interests, and everything will just be you know peaceful. But but it's like, come on, I mean. What what we know about like the Middle East right now? Do we really think that that all of those countries are just are ready for a, a liberal democracy at this at this point in time? And right. you know, America in like the 1970s and 80s would just be like, hell yeah, we gotta you know we just gotta <laughs> just gotta teach them right and get get them to understand, and then it'll be okay. But obviously, obviously, and, you know what. And part of that is true. I mean, uh, we look at places like Saudi Arabia, and sure, they are slowly. You know, being dragged kicking into, kicking and screaming into allowing women to drive and, and, you know, things yeah, like that. Yeah. Like, we're, I think, I think that some of the liberal values are kind of universal truths, um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And I, and I think that educating people on those will invariably change their minds eventually on a long enough yeah, time. Yeah. Um, but my, you know, I think the, uh, yeah, right. I, I think I, like, I would le- say- leading leading by example is sort of the noble way to go about it. You know, it's like you like if you educate, if you like focus on your society and and make sure that what you have going for you and your your corner of the globe is working, uh, then let other people sort of see see the success, see your harmonious uh, you know example, and then they'll be a, they'll be and more hope inclined. They don't be like, get jealous. An attack, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I think I think that's the key is that you almost you have to do it uh leading by example because whereas you might have people, like you say, over time that will see uh you know the wisdom or the value in liberal ideas, I promise you that if you tell them they're going to see, like if you stand there with a gun <laughs> right, and a blue right, right. helmet and say you're going to see the wisdom of these ideas, it'll be far less likely to happen. You know? Right. <laughs> I think we've seen that Throughout history, actually, I think, I think yeah. the history is on your side there. So, uh, yeah. uh, Duncan, can you kind of give us a, a snapshot of the political landscape in Taiwan? I think, you know, I feel like people here in America, I, you know, I hate to say it, but I think we only know of Taiwan as the place that is stamped on some of our goods. I mean, like, it, it's come up in conversations more, you know, in the last 15 years as we've increasingly you know, had tensions with China and, and, and what have you. But I think Taiwan is, is kind of a, is still kind of a mystery for a lot of Americans, I think. Yeah. And it's a shame too, because it, it really is an important, uh, a really like geopolitically, it's a very important like piece of the, the global chessboard, if you will. Like Americans, Americans would do better to learn more about Taiwan's situation because it, it is like a, like in the tug of war between you know U.S. and Chinese hegemony, you know Taiwan is like right right in the middle, just sort of stuck in between the the two major powers. And uh, what happens in Taiwan, I think I see Taiwan as kind of the the canary in the coal mine. If if we're talking about sort of the 
the triumph of liberal values uh, versus you know the potential threat of, of fascism and tyranny. It's like if if the world if the world lets Taiwan uh, just be taken over, conquered, attacked, invaded by China, if if the world kind of turns a blind eye to letting a functioning democratic like representative republic just be be dismantled and and people more or less more or less enslaved. I know that's that is hyperbolic, but to a degree. But but to to break something that is functioning so well and people that are living so peacefully, uh, that would be a true tragedy for like you know for the next uh, next century. I think it'd be a, a bad sign for where where the globe is headed. But that's my you know just a little preface on my uh, my pro Taiwan bias. There. So so uh, yeah. let me get this straight: the libertarian in you kind of makes uh, exceptions in this case for some form of uh, international intervention at some point, like. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I'm not, I said I lean libertarian. I'm not, I'm not like a, we don't need any, any government or like right now, this is, I find myself actually, uh, I, like I admit I have a mixed, mixed feelings on sort of the U.S. military power because when I see, like I, I live in, uh, I was in Japan when 9-11 happened, right? And so I sort of saw that from that vantage point, uh, America going into Afghanistan and then Iraq and just really, really making a mess of the Middle East, which was already a political mess, you know, if we're being honest, and just really, really just screwing the pooch over there, you know, and that really, uh, really made me dislike and, and sort of uh, distrust the the American political establishment and the military sure. industrial complex. But But when you look at East Asia... Uh, it's, you have a different story, and I think you, ha I have to give credit where credit is due, and the U.S. is, is genuinely a force for good in this, in this area of the world, especially when you look at, like, uh, the force that China has become and what I think China represents for, for a potential future for, for the region and possibly mankind, you know? So, so again, excuse my ignorance, but for, for me and the rest of the viewers, can you, can you give us some examples of that? Um, of like America with, being a force for good? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the spread of, uh, the spread of communism, you know, if you're talking about the, the Cold War era, like if you're in, if you're in, uh, South Korea, like people in South Korea, a lot of them, especially the older generation, have a real, uh, like sense of gratitude towards the United States for protecting them from being overrun by, uh, North Korea, supported by the USSR. You know, back during the Korean War, and and if it wasn't for if it wasn't for the United States, then uh, South Korea wouldn't have a nation, and they are like they're very aware of that fact, you know. Mm. Uh, and in the case of uh, like the Philippines, also like uh, Philippines, like really really like the United States because they they feel like uh, the U.S. helped them even during the like during the colonial period. At least some degree economically, but they also feel like uh, of all the colonial powers, the U.S. has been like the most the most benevolent, you know, and right. even even better than some of their own their own like governments. Uh, and in Taiwan's case, uh, the U.S. is the lifeline. You know, if the U.S. stops selling Taiwan weapons, then uh, you know Taiwan doesn't have a doesn't have a hope of of maintaining its independence and autonomy. Right. So, uh, well, it's it's interesting that you say that, Doug, and it, it makes me want to ask, you know, our news is presented to us through such heavily partisan lenses these days. It's hard for us to gauge, you know, how the Trump administration and its actions with regards to, say, China with the, the trade war, North Korea with mm -hmm. the talks, are being received yeah. in places like Taiwan or South Korea. You're much closer to the source. Um, how do you feel those folks in those places look at what Trump's been doing? Uh, yeah, from what I get, from what I gather, compared to how most people in North America and Europe view the Trump administration, is quite quite different from how uh, Asian governments are looking at the Trump administration. I think what the U.S. has has begun doing in uh, on the Korean Peninsula and dealing with China and the trade imbalance, uh, there's a lot more uh, a lot more at stake here for these uh, for these Asian countries and economies. Dealing with uh, this, you know, this new turn in American governance. So I think while a lot of people might write off 
uh, Trump on foreign policy and just like, oh, he's making a fool of himself. People over here uh, are a lot more attuned to, to what he does and what he, what the U.S. is actively doing right now because it it has a, a it could have some serious consequences, especially for for China and the Korean Peninsula mm-hmm. and the South well, the South China Sea, the whole you know ASEAN uh, region. Well, I think I think being as there is sort of that disconnect, it's it's very jarring for folks, especially folks on the left here at home. To see instances where, like, you know, the protesters in Hong Kong are appealing to Trump in America for help in escaping oppression and authoritarianism. Now, obviously, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I know that I know that you're not in Hong Kong, but in mm. your opinion, like, what what ultimately drives that view to put like a really fine point on it? And by that, I mean, do folks on that side of the world still see America as a country that stands up for the values we espouse, like liberty and democracy, democracy, or is it more of like a, a political calculation along the lines of, well, you know, the orange man hates China and I'm mad at China too. Like, is it, is it just like America can be a beneficial ally or America uh, yes, does back think, up what they say, you know? I mean, it's a bit of both. It's not, I don't think this has anything to do with Trump. If, if you're just looking at the Hong Kong situation, uh, yeah, I think there are a, a lot of people there that maybe they hope that America stands up for, you know, for what it has uh, told the rest of the world it believes in for the last, you know, 60, 70 years. Like they're kind of, maybe they're hoping to, to, to re-spark that, the old, the old America that is sort of, you know, that was lost <laughs> somewhere in the last, you know, 70 years. But, uh, I mean, they genuinely believe that, that America represents, uh, liberty and justice and, uh, you know, freedom, independence. And, I mean, it does. It should, right? I mean, that's, that's the ideal. That's what America should be, uh, should be striving to do. And, and right now, you know, we have to face the, face the facts. China is the most dangerous and most powerful, uh, government, you know, threat to, to the global order that there is right now. You know, I mean, unless you think that, that Trump and the U.S. Are, are upending the global order on their own, which, you know, maybe they maybe they are, you know. Well, do you, I mean, do you really, like, you know, China China is kind of the, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, right? Like, we're we're talking about all these things, and they, they do kind of invariably lead back to China. And it, it makes me wonder, because in the U.S., we're, we're led to view China antagonistically. It's It's... You know, the quasi-evil socialist powerhouse that's poised to topple and surpass us as the next superpower. There's no, there's no quasi. There's no quasi. (laughs) So that, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. From your, from your viewpoint, does that have merit or is it, is it just nonsense? And it sounds like you, I mean, you're definitely coming down on that one. That evil is, you know, evil is a loaded word with a lot of like, you know, you know, potentially religious connotation, but, but I mean, uh, the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party is bad news. I mean, that's just like, uh, their historical record kind of speaks for itself, and when you just look at how how opaque their like their government, how opaquely their government operates, and uh, you look at sort of the the really Orwellian like social credit system that's building up there, and the the concentration camps in Xinjiang, and uh, and what they've done to the like the Tibetan region, just really sort of like methodically methodically like bleeding out these cultures and breeding them out as well. You know, just, it's like, it's really, um, I mean, it's really nasty stuff like forced, forced marriages with Han people in, in, uh, uh among like weaker women. It's uh, like forced sterilizations in some of these uh, camps, apparently. Like, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's egregious stuff, you know, and this is the kind of, this is exactly the type of scenario that, you know, the world rallied around in world war two to you know to defeat the evil fascist menace of uh, Hitler's Germany, but but right now, you know China has so much uh, economic and political clout in the world that you know people are just are just mum on these issues, you know. Mm. So uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, like of course, evil is, could be a hyperbolic word, but I mean, the CCP's well, no joke, man. They're, they're I don't think you know. Throwing throwing Muslims in concentration camps, uh, yeah, I don't yeah. think calling that evil is is hyperbolic. I mean, you know, yeah, any more right, than exactly. throwing yeah. Jews in concentration camps was hyperbolically evil. That's it's it's pretty freaking evil, man. It forced sterilization. Yeah, I, mean, I I think you can 
I can make a hard line right there with yeah, forced yeah, sterilization. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, that's a human right. If you were born with the with the ability to reproduce and you take that away, you're evil. Get out of here. Like, no, no, no hyperbole at all. No, I, I agree. I just I have this tendency to sort of like uh, moderate myself. Like I always want to take that sort of like a little bit of diplomatic tact, and, and I also don't want to. I think when people talk about evil, you know, they're they're too quick to jump into these like uh, these spiritual, you know, ideas right. about like, like the good will conquer all. Like we have to, you know, I just right. want to like be careful of setting up a dichotomy it. where like yeah, oh they're exactly. evil and we're good and anything right. we do is is righteous and you know led by the the hand of God, which is exactly where the Republican right in America is kind of leaning into these days, uh, which is really yeah, scary yeah. and not something you want to really buy into. So yeah, I agree. Well, I, I think something that kind of breaks that up wonderfully is China's social credit system. So there's something that, you know, everybody, you know, there's been, I don't know how many articles written about it, but like, you know, so in a sense, uh, you know, as we've discussed before, uh, uh, you and me since, uh, it's happening here. I mean, it's happening here. It's just not state run like it is right, over in right. China, you know? So so to sit there and say, you know, they're they're the devil or anything, yes, that's obviously too far, but if it's bad when we do it, then it's bad when they do it. Like Sure, you know, and, and I see the similar I mean I think cancel culture has a lot in common with with social credit systems, oh, right? Yeah. Like yeah. like they, walk they the line or be removed, yeah. you know, or be removed from these these societal privileges. Yeah, um, yeah. so yeah, I think you're right there, Theory. China has its own band brand of, of cancel call out culture. Yeah, if you, if you if you go against the party line, then like the whole Chinese internet will just come down on your ass. And it's uh, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty crazy. Well, not to mention your your rating may drop if you you know if you post the wrong news story, you create the wrong news story, and all of a sudden you're you're all kinds of uh, outcast. You know. Everyone yeah, can see it too. They're they're on their app. Like, oh man, he's only uh, ten out of a hundred. Like, we're stay away from yeah, him. Yeah. It goes back to yeah, that we joke, episode, which was so good. Yeah, yeah. But, but we joked before. It's like in in China, they have they have the whole social credit apparatus, and it's kind of like gamified, you know. And they're at least they're at least sort of giving people a peek into how they how they rate, like what their social value is here. You know, where where have they been filed and classified? But but in the U.S., in the West, it's like the banks, the credit card companies, the social media companies, they have all this like big data correlated. You, you know, you're like you're still slotted and organized and, and assessed. But, right. But We're in just the US, in the dark don't, about it. it. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. It's like your credit score is like your your I guess your main clue, your your first little tidbit of how they how they rank you. But there's right. so much that we just don't know in, in the U.S. Well, how yeah. is. How has living in the shadow of, of a country like China affected, you know, to kind of circle back to Taiwan, like Taiwanese yeah, politics? Yeah. Like, so in Taiwan, do they have like the standard, you know, left-right political divide like we do here? Or, you know, does it look different? No, no, actually, like Taiwan politically is, is probably one of the, the strangest, um, I guess, like political landscapes among like developed nations because in in Taiwan, like the foundational political question is how does how does Taiwan relate to China? And so you have you have basically two camps, and they're they're color coded. You know, uh, in the U.S., you have the the blue and the red with the representing the Democrat and the Republican Party, and in Taiwan you have the blue camp and the green camp, and the green camp represents the old Chinese Nationalist Party that came back to Taiwan. Uh, they came to Taiwan at the end of World War II, and they like instituted their own authoritarian regime. And then eventually Taiwan democratized, and uh, this new party, this uh, Green uh, Democratic uh, Progressive Party, uh, they they came to the fore, and they're the Green Camp, which basically represents the uh, independence and the uh, local Taiwanese identity. So the, the crazy thing about uh, the political spectrum in Taiwan is that there's not this like clear progressive conservative divide. Like you have both of those elements in both the green camp and the blue camp. So if you mm, take like, but they're not oh, dividing take, those lines, right? Because that's not where the main fissure, like that's not the main social division. The main social division is like, are we Taiwanese or Chinese? And then after, after you sort of 
orient yourself according to that question, then there's like minor spectrums within the two camps. Like, so if you take an issue like, uh, uh, like gay marriage, in both groups, both groups, you have like staunchly anti homosexual elements and you also have younger pro uh, you know, pro equality, pro gay marriage elements, especially like the younger people. So you could but have, when it comes when it comes time to go to the polls or whatever, like yeah, those yeah. guys hold hands and rally around what they perceive to be a greater threat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah China China is the biggest factor in in like determining the electorate and how you know how the votes are going to go and how you're going to appeal to people. So the the blue camp really is on a they're on a downward trend because as long as they hold on to this idea that that the Republic of China, which is Taiwan's like legal official name, like as long as they hold on to this mentality that that they are Chinese and that they deserve a seat at the table, you know, a governing China proper, like their their electoral support is gonna is gonna decrease as like the population ages, right? Uh, and the young people, like right now, I think it's something like. Uh, 75 or 80 percent of the population like do not see themselves as Chinese. Like they consider mm. themselves Taiwanese first, and then like like potentially Chinese second. Like a maybe a a third of that number that puts themselves as Chinese first. They're like, yeah, we're Chinese culturally, but but like we're we're Taiwanese first. And then there's only like a small small percentage of the population that that really takes that hard line. No, we're Chinese. Taiwan is part of China. Like that's a very uh, a diminishing minority in the country right now. But for the but for the I believe you said the blues to have traction though there there still has yeah. to be like a drive for for what? Like do they see themselves as like would they see Taiwan uh you know officially and forever irreparably unified or do they see Taiwan as like you know an independent organism that's somehow going to be Chinese yet function independently? Yeah, well, their their current approach to mainland China, and it's it's really it's really fascinating if you look at the history, just the modern history of the the Chinese Nationalist Party. You know, they went from like staunchly anti-communist, just like no uh, no interaction with uh, the communist government, like like uh, no communication, no flights, just like cutting off everything, and then as as Taiwan democratized and China's economy grew and China had something to offer. Then they become a lot more friendly with with the <laughs> Communist Party. If you know, <laughs> there's a, some money, some money to be made. Yeah. So right now, right now, their outlook is they want uh, they want to be treated as equals to uh, Beijing. Like they want they want to administer Taiwan like like according to their own. Uh, you know, they want to have free reign in Taiwan, but they're willing to like increase integration in different ways with with the mainland. You know, sure, they want uh, Thai exit, right? I mean, they want to be, they want to be their own unit. No, no, that's the that's the green camp. The green camp like wants nothing to do with po- politically with. China. Oh, I see what you're but saying. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the blue the KMT the KMT has this, I mean, call it a fantasy. Basically, they have a fantasy that they're gonna they're gonna come to the negotiating table with Beijing, and that Beijing is gonna like accept their demands, and that they're gonna stay in power in Taiwan and sort of have their own little fiefdom under the umbrella of, of like the, the people's Republic, you know, but well, they think that they think that they can democratize China proper, but you know, that's, that's obviously a a pipe dream (laughs) at this point. Yeah. 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 Unless, you know, unless the, the PRC like, you know, you know, collapses or, or, well, uh, I was going to say, are they emboldened by what's happening in Hong Kong right now? Oh, absolutely. That's going to be a huge, a huge influence on the Taiwanese presidential election, which is coming up in January. Yeah. So right now, right now, the the blue camp, uh, which is right now that there's a DPP, a green camp is in power. Like they have the presidency and the legislature. Uh, so they're probably going to maintain power. The current president, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, um, she'll probably win a second term more than likely. It's, it's looking it's looking like the uh, blue camp, uh, their their electoral chances look to be look to be pretty pretty low at this point, and it's because of Hong Kong in, in part. They, like Taiwanese people see what's happening in Hong Kong, and there's this this common phrase, this expression that like today's Hong Kong will be tomorrow's Taiwan, and and I guess that that really resonates with people. They they don't want 
the sort of social unrest and and uh, tension that that is happening. And I, in, in I, I think now. that throws into focus like why China is is so worried about Hong Kong, right? Because to them, it's not right. just about Hong Kong. <laughs> it's right, not yeah. at all. Yeah. They have they have a lot at stake here. Yeah, kind of all all across the world. Yeah, the, in China, everything is like they've built up this reputation, and they're so they're so worried about their face, you know, their their sort of how they're respected, like the the populace respects them because they're powerful and because they maintain harmony. But if if it's seen that they don't have control over one part of their territory, their greatest fear is that is that like unrest spreads like a contagion throughout the country. And right. they have and here it reason. is happening. They have, right, yeah. they have very good reason to be worried about that because that's like it's they've really built this relatively flimsy house of cards, I think, and, and they're uh, they've made things really difficult for themselves because I mean how are you how are they gonna deal with what's happening in Hong Kong right now? It's uh, I mean the people in Hong Kong there have like have already drawn their line in the sand and they're they're saying like we're not we're not going back to what what we were doing, you know, just a year ago. They're saying like right. this is. They're kind of goading China on right now. They're saying like, you know, come come and get us. Like we're we're waiting for you basically. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how how China's gonna gonna handle this. They're just hoping at this point, I guess, that things calm down on their own. But it doesn't seem like that. Well, they, they yeah, I mean, we just had a protester shot. I mean. Well, and then yeah, after yeah. that, uh, what tens of thousands, uh, just took to the streets, I think the night before, the day before last, uh, in, uh, so they've got like a mask law. Am I, am I, yeah, about that thing? right. Yeah. And, and they, yeah, and yeah, like yeah. everyone showed up in mass. So yeah, I don't think this is going away for China anytime soon. Yeah. And they just had, uh, a few, like several thousand people met in like one of the, like one of the real city centers and they all, they all like read out a declaration of a new provisional government. So Ooh. it's, it's like, it's getting serious. You know, it's like, you know, right now people might, might still be at that stage like, oh, oh, those, those silly protesters. But, you know, this is, this is kind of how, you know, <laughs> this is how new countries get started, you know? Right. Yeah. So, that's uh, how things take hold. We're kind of witnessing it real time. It's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really, it really does beg the question. I mean, if, if, Somebody who knows who, if somebody decides to help out the protesters and start smuggling weapons into Hong Kong, then yeah, China is in. Mm. China's going to be uh, uh, in, in between a rock and a hard place. I mean, not yeah, I, I mean, guess, right now. I guess we have to look at that and go. Do we want to let Russia be that guy? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, it. I mean, it would be the. It, it might not be directly the U.S., but I guarantee if it did happen, the, the CIA would have their fingers in that. Absolutely, yeah. but. Uh, but yeah, but it does it does kind of put a you know let's say the Second Amendment issue into a perspective. I think. Uh, well, yeah. so is there a second? Anyone know? Is there a Second Amendment type situation in Hong Kong? Are there weapons allowed? No, no, no. Have no, no, absolutely not. I'm just saying, like, if they did, their things would be entirely different, right? Now. Well, yeah, that's yeah, kind of that's uh, kind of what I'm saying. It's like if 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 these protesters were taking the streets with with AKs. Um, you know, an M16s and AR15s. Uh, I wonder what that would look like. It might turn into an absolute bloodbath before any progress was made. You know, well, I was I gonna say, the I think, gun grabbers like to go like, "Oh, we'll protect our freedoms," but you know, when shit turns to a bloodbath, it's kind of a different story. I think we'd have a little more resolution one way or the other, either way. You know what right? I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, it might be true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Beijing is really kind of throttling the trigger. They're they're. They haven't they haven't called in the PLA like the official Chinese military right now they're they're still letting the Hong Kong police sort of manage the situation but if you, I think if you ask any Hong Konger they'd be like the, the police are just like just totally fucking everything up like there there's really really low trust in the police force right now they've made they've kind of made like public enemies of them of themselves right that yeah. must be a tough yeah. place to be in man because you imagine there's some of those police officers that are on the side of the protesters and they got to feed their yeah. family and they got to you know they got to do their job like it's a really tough place to be man yeah. and that's and that's another thing if you think about it from Beijing's perspective and their sort of calculus on the issue if the PLA does get involved then i think you could see you could see people like the police officers in Hong Kong start to break rank and if you have if you have like a contingent of armed cops that's like, no, you know, 
Like we right. will enforce we'll enforce the laws here. If you want to start sending in Chinese military, then we're gonna ha- we're gonna turn into a, like a militia force, basically. So there is that. Right. You got you got like a head of, of police marching in front of the protesters, clearing the way instead. And and now you're yeah. now you're in all sorts of weird territory. You're in the weeds for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that raises a, a, an interesting question. I think I, there is a feeling in Western society right now that that we're on the verge of of like a massive change or or you know maybe a paradigm shift. I you, you want to talk about yeah. Brexit, climate change, uh, what the world looks like in Trump term two or the world post Trump. Either way, yeah. um, it yeah. seems like everybody feels. Like the political stakes are sky high because for better or worse, there's going to be this big change. So with that happening in Hong Kong and, and you know, things going on with the talks in North Korea and, and like you said, with Taiwan, is there that same sense like across Asia? Is, is everybody feeling this around the globe? Uh, I mean, that's hard to say. I can't, I can't speak for, for everyone in Asia, but uh, sure. but I get the sense. I get the sense that we're we're on the verge of a a quickening towards towards a new sort of political paradigm, and I think it's I think it's this maybe it's a move towards like a, a bipolar like a a multipolar world. Maybe we'll have like or maybe a bipolar power structure. Maybe China and the U.S. are gonna sort of there's gonna be these two big camps basically uh, between between the two. But I don't know. I'm actually. I actually lean towards the view that that China's China's outlook is probably not the best. I would say, um, if there is a positive development in the next fifty years, uh, like I hope that it's sort of the the beginning of, let's say, the democratization of China, or at least sort of the the slow undoing of the the uh, Chinese Communist Party. I think that would be a, a good good news for the world and for China. But uh, but I don't know. I think. Uh, in Asia, I get the sense, I get less of a sense that there's this sort of like millenarian outlook. Like if you, I mean, if you look at, uh, people in the West, in, in Europe, people like, so looking at Brexit or in, um, recently people really getting, uh, getting fired up over the climate change debate. I really feel like a lot of that has the, the markings of this sort of, uh, uh, this millenarian identity that like, oh, like, you know, the world, the world as we know it is coming to an end and, and we're going to like have a, a new beginning or a, you know, a, a rupture of some kind. And uh, I don't know, maybe eh, it could be if, if we have another huge global conflict on the horizon, uh, who knows? Right. Uh, I think under, under intense pressures is when, you know, changes start happening quick, fast, um, and yeah. major, major quick changes. So the right amount of pressure, man, and you, you never know. And, uh, this stuff could start start blowing up faster than we think, uh, especially here yeah. in America with the, uh, you know, Trump tweeting civil war rumblings and stuff. We <laughs> who knows who knows what may happen in the future. So yeah, but I think I think there it really does look like like from my perspective that the U.S. and China are, are on a crash course. Like when we talk about the uh, the trade war. Even if Trump, even if Trump leaves office, I think the the trade war and sort of the this um, this new like antagonism in the economic realm, like it's not gonna gonna go away that quickly. Even if Trump announces a deal in the next two months or whatever, it's still this is gonna be a lingering issue for like the next generation. Yeah. Like, but no, it's well, exciting yeah, you times. Can't, you can't immediately like so you know say. Trump were to come out of office, any concessions that he gains through this trade deal, you can't immediately give up, you know. So I mean, you can't you can't just go through and be like, well, what Trump was doing was bad, and we're just going to completely undo everything. So he has, yeah. in a sense, saddled uh, you know future administrations here with uh, with keeping a more uh, you know bold and, and kind of confrontational uh, stance with China when it comes to economics. It's like, I mean, yeah. you know, you definitely don't want to see as the person be seen as the person who who botched it up after Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> well, Duncan, it was a delight having you on today. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show and share your insights. Like I say, I think. Absolutely. You know, all of us here in America and, you know, our listeners could always stand to, to, you know, learn a little bit more about Asia and, you know, what's going on somewhere other than the place we eat, sleep and breathe every day, you know? 
Right, right. Yeah. Uh, before we skedaddle for today, is there you know anything that you'd like to add or you know bring uh, up? Yes, I'd actually, like actually, since you mentioned it, uh, like me and my friends, we, we're working towards this uh, kind of really important event. Uh, something that we've kind of been trying to do. I want to do something special for people here in Taiwan. So you know, while I got your audience, I was wondering, can you all can you all help me promote an event, maybe? Yeah, uh, no, so, we'll give it a shout out, man. Okay, so there's a petition right now on Facebook to get Taylor Swift to come to Taiwan, right? Yes. And I was wondering, I'm out of here. do you think you I'm all out. could put Please. the link put the link on your webpage with the yes! podcast? You could- Hey folks, it's Theory of the Sense and Theory Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you for continuing to listen and support the show. We really appreciate it. It means the world to us. Uh, if you get a chance, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, uh, like us. Uh, you know, it really helps the podcast uh, take off. And, uh, you know, get at us on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we're at all the usual places. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to email us at uh, senseandtheorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, show ideas, suggestions, critiques, uh, condemnations, it's all good. Send it our way. Uh, we'll see you next week.